are in a study through the book of Acts, and we're going to pick that back up today. Are you excited to get back into the book of Acts? Amen? We haven't been in there in quite a while. We took a little break for the summer. We're going to pick up in chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. I titled this message, Calling All Underdogs. Anybody ever felt like an underdog? Mm, Calling All Underdogs. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, I ask for your help. Just seems like every time I stand up here, I have this overwhelming sense of how how weak and finite and, Lord, limited I am. How really, there in my words, there is no power to change anybody. But, Lord... When you, when you anoint people and you anoint ears for the word of God to be spoken and heard, powerful things happen in this kingdom that is advancing in Greer, that's advancing in Turkey and in Asia and in Africa. Lord, powerful things happen when your word is spoken. Paul said, the word of God bears fruit and increases wherever it goes. So I pray that in this little gathering of believers this morning that your word would bear fruit and increase for your glory and the spread of your fame. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, just hold Acts 12 open there. It's going to take me a little bit to get to it, but let me just review what we've learned so far. Uh, the book of Acts opens, and Jesus is, has been resurrected. He died a horrible death, but he has come back to life. He's with his disciples. He spent about 40 days on the earth was seen physically by hundreds of people. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't just a spirit. He was physically resurrected. He ate fish in his disciples' presence to just prove to them, look, I'm not a ghost. I still like to eat, right? He let doubting Thomas touch his scars in his hands, his feet, and his side, okay? He was physically resurrected, and before he ascended to heaven, he made a promise to his disciples, and the promise was twofold. The first part was this, power's coming. Right? And not some atmospheric energy. The power's coming via a person. His name is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. He's going to come. You're going to be baptized, immersed, overwhelmed, drowned in Him. And you're going to receive power for a specific purpose so that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Turkey, China, Korea. Africa, you with me? Right? That's the promise. That's how big the promise was that Jesus made. And that was fulfilled, at least the beginning of it, in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit was poured out, believers were filled, and 3,000 people got saved on the birthday of the church. Right? Acts chapter 2. And the gospel just began to spread like crazy in Jerusalem and Judea. There were miraculous displays of power, miraculous numbers of people coming to faith in Christ, right? Just amazing things happened. They had miraculous fellowship. People were selling their possessions and giving them to each other as they had need. They devoted themselves to teaching and to prayer, to fellowship, right? And then persecution came on the church. Namely, at the hands of a guy named Saul. And the persecution caused the church to scatter. Believers scattered out of Jerusalem. And guess what also went with them? The gospel. Right? 
Persecution is not always a bad thing. Let me try that again. Persecution is not always a bad thing. In fact, a little pressure can actually get the church moving really quickly. Okay? So the, the believers were scattered. The gospel went with them. All right? The gospel began to spread. And this guy Saul that was sort of leading the charge against the church of Jesus was miraculously converted. Chapter 9, we read that story, okay? And not long after that, God confirms to Peter and then to the rest of the apostles, guess what? This good news, this promise of power in the Spirit and of life with Jesus is not just for the Jews. I should have got a really big amen right there. To my knowledge, there might be some people of Jewish heritage in here, but most of you are from Greer. (laughs) Guess what that means? If Peter had not gone to Cornelius' house and Jesus not shown him, look, this this is bigger than Jerusalem. This is bigger than Israel. This promise is for everyone whom the Lord our God would call to himself, right? And it's right at the end of chapter 11 that we see Paul begin his missionary work as well. And so now we come to chapter 12. When I rehearse all those details... I think about underdogs, right? I mean, what, what is your favorite underdog story? Think about the movie that was a part of our at the movie series last week, Lord of the Rings. It wasn't the mightiest of warriors that defeated Sauron, the enemy. It was the little hobbit named Frodo. What an underdog story, right? And my favorite, Rocky. How many of you have never heard of Rocky? Some of you haven't. We'll pray for you. Okay. Rocky. This little nobody from Philadelphia that had the most incredible fighting spirit. He just wouldn't quit, right? And those are fictional stories. But I love them. Think about real life. Think about Nelson Mandela. Right? The first one from his family to go to school. He spent... I think it was 27 years in prison before he took down the apartheid in South Africa. And he won the Nobel Peace Prize and became South Africa's first truly democratically elected president. Right? Amazing story. Right? Think about in the Bible, David. Shepherd boy kills Goliath, becomes king, and eventually, the Bible says, he established peace on every border. He defeated all of his enemies. What an incredible underdog story. Gideon, right? One of the other pastors preached on Gideon not that long ago. The runt from the runt tribe. Read your Bible. That's really who he was. And God called him a mighty warrior. He was an underdog. We love underdog stories, don't we? I love them. Is anybody, who loves underdog stories, right? We just love it, right? We love it in sports. We love it in fiction. We love it in real life. Why? That's what I started to think about this week. Why do we love underdog stories? I think I'll suggest two things. One, we love underdog stories because we all know what it's like to feel intimidated. Every one of us knows what it's like to feel that crippling feeling in the shadow of enemies that seem too big for us to handle. 
obstacles and difficulties that seem insurmountable and overwhelming. We know what it's like to feel intimidated. So it's natural for us to be inspired by those who overcome the odds, to, to be inspired by those stories when the weak, when the poor, and the powerless overcome the strong. Right? But I think there's a deeper reason that we love underdog stories. I think that, that part of our, of our souls that gets pricked by underdog stories is actually the thumbprint of God on our lives. Why do I say that? I think there's a kingdom principle at work. It's because God is the God of the underdogs. He is his kingdom. Not Our God's not an underdog. But his kingdom advancing through you and me is the greatest underdog story of all time. You with me? Bradley, did you make that up or is that in the Bible somewhere? Look on the screen, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You probably heard this, but God chose what is foolish. Everybody say foolish. Foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Next verse, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are. Bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is the kind of God who at times, circumstances, chooses the weak, the lowly, and the foolish to do great things through. Why does he do that? He does that, and the answer is in that last verse, so that no one may boast in themselves. God is the kind of God who works through the weak, the lowly, the poor, and the foolish so that he can nullify human pride so that he gets the glory. The point of the story is God's glory. Come on, say it like you mean it. It's God's glory. And we've talked about this a lot at Resurrection Church. God is not a narcissist. He's not a narcissist. The fact that God works for his own glory is the most loving thing that he could ever do. It's the most... It, it, he could not work for your joy in any better way. God is the most admirable. He is the most worthy. He is the most beauty, beautiful. He is holy. He is righteous. So he could not be more for your joy than to put his glory on display. You know as well as I do, our greatest joy is in admiration. College football is about to start. And guess what a lot of you are going to do? You're going to sit in front of your TV or in the stands and yell and scream and holler and admire. And you know what? You're going to love it. <laughs> when your kid gets up there in front of an audience and plays their piano recital and misses eight out of ten notes, you're as happy as you can be. You're admiring. What greater joy could there be than admiring the most admirable? How could God love us more 
than to be about his glory. So God chooses the weak, the poor, the powerless, and the lowly so that the greatest joy can be experienced by his people. And that is not boasting in ourselves, but boasting in him. I'm preaching a lot better than your amen. I love you. I'm just playing. You with me? So, Bradley, why are you talking about this? This sets the stage for chapter 12 in the book of Acts. Chapter 12 in the book of Acts. I think the way Luke, Luke wrote the book of Acts, the, way, the reason why Luke was inspired to put this chapter together the way that he was is to make this one big point, is that those who humble themselves before God with a desire to give God exalting praise to Him are on the winning team. It's pretty simple, isn't it? The flip side of that is those who desire self-exaltation are going to lose every time. Okay? There's only one winning team. And that team is the team that is seeking by, through humble praise to bring God glory in all things. Right? And the losing team is the team that wants to self-exalt, self-promote, seek the praise of men. Right? So, what we're going to do is we're going to journey through this tra- chapter and well, here's what we're going to find out. I don't know if it, there's anybody in here that's feeling intimidated right now, overwhelmed, burdened, you feel, you feel crippled in the shadow of giants right now, whether those giants are people or circumstances. If you are, here's what I, I, I'm praying and believing is going to happen as we work through this chapter, is that you're going to be reminded that the response to intimidation is not to puff your chest out and bow up, nor is it to turn tail and run. It's to humble yourself before God. And you know what? If you do that, you're going to win every time. Because God never loses. You with me? It's pretty simple, I know, but let's, let's journey through it. Uh, Acts chapter 12. Let's read the first five verses to start. At about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Let's talk about this guy, Herod. Who is he? He's Herod Agrippa I. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. You probably remember Herod the Great. He was the one who was king when Jesus was born, and he ordered the slaughter of all male infants in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. Okay, That's who this guy is. He's a lot like his grandfather in that he is just all about making sure that no one threatens his power and prestige. He's all about himself. Okay, And Luke gives us three clues that... Tell us that Herod was this way, that he's all about self-exaltation. The first is he killed James. He beheaded the apostle James. Why? Did you know Jesus gave James and his brother John a nickname? Do you mind know what that nickname was? Sons of Thunder. 
Okay? So it stands to reason that Herod might have felt somewhat threatened by James, so he had his head chopped off. And then Luke gives us this little nugget. When Herod saw this pleased the Jews, he's all about winning favor, gaining political prowess. He's all about the praise of men. When he saw it pleased the Jews, he's like, I'm going to get Peter too. So he arrested Peter, had him thrown in prison, and decides that after Passover, Peter's going to meet the same fate, and I'm just going to gain more favor. Luke gives us another clue about Herod, and it's at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 20. We're just talking about who Herod is and what his motivation is. Verse 20, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. You got that? Two cities. Herod is their source of food. Herod's mad at them. Right? Herod's mad at them, and so their food source is threatened. So they request an audience with Herod the king, and they get it. And look what happens. Verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon his throne, and delivered an oration to them. So Tyre and Sidon depend on Herod for food. Herod's mad at them for some reason. We don't really know why. They request an audience with the king. Herod says, all right, I'm going to give them an audience, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put on my robe, right? I'm going to put on my robe. I'm going to pull out my throne. I'm going to sit down in front of them, and I'm going to give them a speech. Look at me, look at me, look at me, and then watch this. Verse 22, and the people were shouting, the voice of a God, not a man. The people of these two cities were either really, really stupid or really, really smart. I think they were really, really smart. I think they understood Herod loves praise. You ever had anybody come up to you and just sort of be too complimentary? You're like, what's their angle? This is the voice of a God, not a man. Herod's not a mere mortal. They puffed him up. They gave him exactly what he wanted. Right? I think they were smart. That's who Herod is. He's all about himself. He's all about self-exaltation. Now we understand Herod. We've also got some other folks in this story. James and Peter and a praying church. James and Peter in a praying church. In the midst of all this pomp and circumstance surrounding King Herod, we've got some Galilean fishermen. Uneducated, not powerful, not rich, not people that would intimidate you with their appearance. They have no weapons. They have no army. They just hung out with Jesus for three and a half years. Right? And Jesus was the guy who was killed by Rome on a cross. And so now, these little Galilean fishermen, these little weak, poor, lowly, unwise people are the leaders of a new movement. And this movement is gaining momentum fairly rapidly. But here's the basis of the movement, is that the God Jesus we hung out with for three and a half years that Rome killed, he's not dead, he came back to life. That's the basis. And you got Herod, 
the king in his royal robe, on his throne, giving people speeches. He's got the cities of Tyre and Sidon by the throat because they depend on him for food. He saw this movement and one of the sons of thunder as the leaders of that. He's like, I'm going to show them who's boss. I'm going to pull him in and chop his head off in front of everybody. Intimidating? And then they arrest Peter. Let's not make the mistake of reading this story in the cheap seats and thinking that we would not have been intimidated by all of this. If somebody came in here, arrested me, and chopped my head off, and then the next day came in and arrested Keith, preparing for him to meet the same fate, y'all might be a little bit nervous. Huh? That's where we are. Intimidating. You ever, you ever, you ever felt intimidated? You ever, you ever just felt like, I'm too small. I can't do this. I can't, I can't live up to those expectations. My marriage is falling apart. I can't ever be what he expects me to be, what she expects me to be. I'm, in my career, I've, I've been promoted and now I have responsibilities such that I feel totally inadequate for. I've told the story before. When I graduated college and took my first ministry job at a church in North Carolina, I'll never forget the feeling before my first day at the church. I called Mary, who was my fiancé then, not my wife. She was not there with me yet. And I said, I can't do this. I'm not enough. I don't have enough training. I don't have enough talent. I don't have enough experience. I'm too young. What about when your children are born? I don't know about you, but I stared at a human being that had been entrusted to me, and I thought, God, you messed up. What about when the diagnosis comes? What about when the doctor says, no, there's nothing, this is it. You're either going to have to live with this or you're just not going to live very much longer. What about when we face death? A loved one dies. You find yourself in circumstances where you're in the shadow of people and circumstances that feel like they're giants and you feel scared and intimidated. And what are you going to do? There's two responses. One is to kind of bow up. Make yourself big, puff your chest out, try to, try to fight back and try to exalt yourself, try to make yourself look big. I mean, that's what we used to do in elementary school when we were about to fight. Right? Just trying to make yourself look big so the other person gets scared, right? When really you're the one that's intimidated. At least that was my experience. <laughs> it's either that or it's turn tail and run and quit and give up. You remember what we said about the book of Acts? The book of Acts tells us the history of this adventure story that God has invited all of us on. 
It's an adventure story of participation with Jesus in his kingdom work by the power of the Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you, lives in me, and we've been invited to participate with Jesus in this global kingdom that's advancing through poor, weak, lowly people. Woo! That's what we're going to do. Try to dominate our turf with the size of our outer man, our outer woman, or are we going to turn tail and run? There's a third option. It's buried in those first five verses. Look at verse five again. Look what the church did. James had his head chopped off. Peter's been put in prison. What did the church do? They prayed. Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. When you humble yourself, that's the third option. Humility is not an embracing of a weak position. It is an acknowledgement of weakness, but it's not the embracing of a weak position. Because how many of you understand that God will put his power on display when you are at the end of yourself? Huh? When you, try to, when you and I try to operate in self-sufficiency, I think we cork the work of the Spirit in our lives. I think we grieve the Spirit, Paul would say. But when we get humble, when we pray, when we get dependent, when we start trusting, when we act like David did before he faced this giant, he acknowledged his own weakness and smallness, right? But yet he knew the Lord was with him. Paul acknowledged, I'm not a great preacher. He told the Corinthian church, I came to you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. Right? It's not a position of weakness to acknowledge weakness. It's in that humble place that we actually find that the promise of God, the promise of Scripture, that when we are weak, He is strong. It's really true. The church prayed. They started to pray. And God started to work. Here's what he did. Verse 6. Let's keep reading. I love this. Big Herod. Big Herod. Little fisherman. Little church. Watch what happens. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, talking about Peter, so Passover must have been over. Now it's time to Kill Peter too. That very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before, uh, before the door, regarding the prison. I love this. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side. Don't you love those little details? Can't you just picture that? An angel coming in the cell going, Peter. Get up. Get up. He struck him on the side. Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Can I preach? Dress yourself. Put your clothes on. Put your sandals on. And he said, and he did so. And he said, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was having a dream. 
He thought he was seeing a vision, verse 10. And when they passed through the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened of them, it, for them of its own accord. This is awesome. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Woo! Man, I wish I had more time, but God jerked Peter right out from under Herod's nose. We keep Herod. We know who Herod is, right? Robes, throne, giving people speeches, chopping people's heads off. Oh, they like that. I'm going to do it again. He's really a weak man, isn't he? And God was letting, I think, first his church know. Don't you be intimidated by Herod. Don't you, little fishermen, be intimidated by tiny little Herod. You remember who your big God is. Huh? You remember, I'm in charge. Well, Bradley, if God's in charge, why was Peter turned loose and not James? Did the prayer work for Peter and not for James? Right? You, you with me? Isn't that, isn't that a logical question to ask? Did the, did the prayer not work for James? You've got to remember, you've got to go back to Mark's gospel and remember that Jesus looked at James and said to him, The cup I will drink, you will drink also. See, Jesus promised, are you listening? Jesus promised power. Power to be witnesses of this kingdom and of our Lord as the King of kings. And sometimes people bear witness in life and being set free from prison. And sometimes people bear witness in death. God will get the glory through a martyr as much as he will through a captive that's set free. God rules over both. It's not big Herod and little church. It's big Herod, it's little Herod, little church, and a really, really, really big God who rules. It was God who chose not to set James free, but to set Peter free. All so that what? Let's keep reading. Verse 12. When he realized this, talking about Peter, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name is Mark, where many were gathered and they were praying. Some more awesome details. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant named Rhoda came to answer, and recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. She forgot to open the door. It's awesome. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. They've probably already chopped his head off. He's meeting the same fate that James met. Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. That's the understatement of the day. But motioning to them with his hand, he said, be silent. 
And he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, now watch this. Tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he parted and went to another place. In other words, I think there was a powerful moment in that little prayer meeting where they realized that the circumstances of Peter's release and James' death, God was in charge of all of it. We don't need to be scared of Herod because God's on the throne. You with me? Tell these things. Tell them. We're not losing. We're winning. God's not off the throne. Herod hasn't taken over. Herod's not a threat. James' death might have been interpreted as such at first, but the angel of the Lord has set me free, I think, just to remind us our God's in charge. Listen, your circumstances are not the indication in and of themselves by which you are to determine whether or not God is at work. If you, if you and I continue to interpret our lives on the basis of circumstances and our perspective on them, our faith is going to be weak. Do you know what's meant to in, interpret our circumstances for us? Is this. And here's what your Bible just told you, and it says it in other places, but it's certainly here in Acts chapter 12. Whether in death or in life, whether in prison or set free, whether in front of Herod, whether in front of Saul, whether in front of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, whether in front of Rome, it doesn't matter. Our God's going to win. And here's a little verse that I think, James chapter 4, verse 6, Charles. I think I skipped it, but go back to it. But he gives more grace. Right? Therefore it says, God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. What is grace? Grace is certainly, we would all say, unmerited favor. Right? But how many of you understand, when God favors you, that's power. Right? When God favors us... His power is at work by grace, right? It's, it's how we're saved. We're saved by grace through faith. The power that it takes to rebirth you and me is delivered by grace. So here's what James says. If we humble ourselves, God gives us more Not, not, not saving grace, but grace to do what he's called you to do. Whether it's to be a missionary or to be a faithful follower of, of Jesus here in Greer, South Carolina. To be a God-exalting, Jesus-loving, boasting-in-the-Lord kind of believer. Right? The more we humble our... If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and... Right? God gives grace to the humble. The response to your intimidating, overwhelming circumstances is not pride that usually manifests in fear or in self-exaltation. The response is humble prayer. Which results in God's grace, right? 
There's a message from God here, I think. The message is clear. An angel shows up twice in chapter 12. Wants to set Peter free, and then the second time to kill Herod. Let's read what happened to Herod, verse 23. So this is at the end of Herod having this big meeting where he puts on his robes, his throne. He's in front of the cities of Tyre and Sidon. They're giving him praise because they want food. He's soaking it up. And then watch this. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, I know it's hard to get past eaten by worms. But the emphasis is on he didn't give God the glory. God has flipped the tables on Herod. Herod thinks he's all that in a bag of chips and he's going to prove it. But he, he committed treason. He stared in the face of the king of kings and said, I'm better. I'm more powerful. And God made him lower than a worm. Can you get any weaker? Can you get any smaller than to become the food of a worm? God flipped the tables to make this one point. I'm in control, and those who humble themselves before me are on the winning team. I tried to make that sound more complicated <laughs> this week. I spent about 30 minutes in my office going, God, okay, God, I understand, but can we make that sound a little better? That just sounds kind of, no, that's it. It's just it. God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. What does it look like? What does it look like to oppose God? Pride. Pride. That's what it looks like to oppose God. Self-exaltation. Seeking the praise of men. That's what it looks like to oppose God. Why? Because the chief end of man, the chief end of you, the chief end of me, is to bring God glory by being satisfied in Him. By trusting and depending on Him. By, by saying, God, I'm weak, but you're strong. And when you get in that place, guess what? The weak do become strong. The poor do become rich. The foolish do become wise. The lowly do get grace. Regardless of how the circumstances play out. Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that can do no more. We're not to be afraid even in death. Because you're, listen, our most intimidating enemies, God may allow them to kill us. Barely, that's heavy. I didn't come to church to be, just, just track with me. God may allow in his sovereign goodness for us to die in his name. And you know what? We will bear witness the same power of the Spirit that Peter's miraculous deliverance from prison did. And we win. We don't lose. We win. 
praise team, you can come on. If you, listen, I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but I, I can just tell by the looks on some of your faces that you're hearing me, but in your mind, there is this, yeah, but you don't know what I'm staring down right now. You, you don't know what's happened between me and my spouse. You don't know what's going on with my children. You don't know what I'm facing financially. You don't know what I'm facing physically. You don't understand how big the giant is. And you're, you're right. I, I, I don't feel what exactly you're feeling right now. But here's what I know is it doesn't matter. You can let your pride tell you to bow up in your own strength and fight or turn tail and run. Both are rooted in pride and pride is always opposed by God. But here's Here's the way to win. God is, God is a God who gives incentive. He's a God who He tells us, you want to, Jesus said, you want to be great? Great. Here's how you do it. Serve everybody. Who doesn't want to be great? I want to be great. Don't you? If you said no, you can repent for lying when we give an altar call in a minute or something. I want to be great. And Jesus says, that's awesome. Here's how you go. Here's how you, here's how you get to great. Go low. Serve. God says, you want to defeat your enemies? You want to bring me glory? You want to win? You want to not waste your life? Let me tell you how to do it. Humble yourself. Humble yourself Seek my face. Paul said in Colossians 3, put on humility. We got to put it on. And the first step to putting it on is realizing that you don't have enough strength. It's going, I'm weak, I'm lowly, I'm foolish, I'm powerless, I'm poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the... There is, and I think that's what Keith was talking about. There's no resurrection without a death. You gotta go to that place. You gotta let the Spirit lead you there. And it's there you find grace. Because God gives grace to the humble. You can humble yourself in your marriage, you can humble yourself with whatever giant you're facing right now. You can humble yourself and pray. Listen, if you're battling, I just felt prominent. If you're battling addiction, it's your pride that's telling you to hide. If you humble yourself before God, there is grace that will overcome that which has you bound. 